Welcome to another episode of Mormon Discussion Podcast. I'm your host, Bill Real, and grateful for the chance to sit down with you today. I've been thinking about doing a series. I'm, I'm reading a book right now that is uh, Obscure Mormon Doctrine, and it's written by a gentleman by the name of Chris Jensen, and he goes through various chapters. The first one is Adam, which we're going to talk about today. And I, I don't know how this will go, but here's here's what I'm thinking. Um I joined the church at 17 years old, and I worked my way up in leadership. Uh, by the age of 29, I'm called to be a bishop in the LDS church. And at 32, I have a faith crisis because I'm reading everything, and I'm trying to be a critical thinker. I'm trying to use rational thinking to try to figure out, like, is Mormonism true or not? Because I've, I've had ingrained in me this lens of Mormonism. It's the way I saw the world. It's the, it's the way I applied meaning to everything. And once I got to a certain point, the, the critical information became overwhelming. And so for folks who are listening, if you're a believer, please bear with me. I promise to be soft and kind um, and to try to talk some of this out. And as we're having this conversation, as I'm going through the things that the LDS Church taught, that Mormonism taught about Adam. And I, I use Mormonism because I'm talking generally about all the various uh, uh, denominations of Mormonism, all the various sects of Mormonism. And so I'm not just talking about Latter-day Saints, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Um, I, I'm also just referring to Mormonism at the 20,000-foot view, even though the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints was my Mormonism. And I know we've moved, you know, that you've moved on from the word. I, I get that. But it, it needs to be noted that, like, the word still applies. And so with that, let's just kind of move forward. And, and again, I'll stammer a little bit because some of these thoughts will be kind of hard to get out. But a good friend of mine, Spencer Wright, taught me um, important lessons on how to be a critical thinker. And... Uh, the way critical thinking works is you're looking for you're looking for the explanations that require the least amount of allowances or conjecture. So anytime you are given two options or 20 options for ways to interpret the data, if you're going to be a rational critical thinker, you are you have to always choose the conclusion that requires the least amount of allowances or conjecture. So for instance, if there's a noise on top of the roof of my cabin, there are lots of possibilities for things it could be. It, it could be that a pine cone fell off of a tree and rattled across my roof and then fell off the roof. It could be that a raccoon jumped off the tree onto my roof. It could be that aliens came down from outer space and landed on my roof. And I can go outside and I can take in data. I can look at, at above my roof of my cabin and I can notice that there is uh, a pine tree with pine cones, that there are pine cones all over the place. While I'm out there, maybe a pine cone falls. And, uh, you know, and then I go like, you know, if I'm going to look at the data, I see, I don't see any raccoons. I certainly don't see any aliens. I might in my mind go, you know, the pine cone makes the most sense. It seemed to fit the sound and the data the best. Raccoons seem like it's a close second place, but I don't see a raccoon around at the moment. 
And uh, aliens coming down from outer space is a far away third option. And if I'm going to tell the story and make an interpretation of those of that event, if I'm going to be a rational thinker, I have to give credit to the pine cone. And even if I go to the raccoon, I'm being irrational if I don't have a reason to give the raccoon a higher standing than the pine cone. And certainly aliens by far is an irrational perspective. And so in this book, Chris Jensen's Obscure Mormon Doctrine, and, and I grant that Mormonism has always been shifting and changing. So there will be parts of this that I think some apologist inside uh, Mormonism, they would like to make an argument that some leader taught that somewhere, but it's not the doctrine of the church. That, that's another discussion for another day. But there is a discussion to be had about how much false stuff are prophets, seers, and revelators allowed to teach versus how much true stuff they teach and how we draw the line of whether we place trust in them or not. But again, we'll do that some other day. So my hope is in this series is that I will take sections and we'll talk about them. So today, the topic generally is the question, is Mormonism absurd? And then today is the first um, episode in that series where we'll talk about Adam, our first parent. And so in his book, um, he says, in Mormon theology, Adam has more roles, has greater power, and generally looms larger than is typically believed. Few men have been more directly involved in the plan of salvation than Adam. He has played and will play important roles in pre-mortal, mortal, and post-mortal lives. So the first thing he says is, um, first human being on earth. He just makes notes of things that we ought to gain from the teachings of Mormonism. So the first thing he says is that Adam is the first human being on earth. And he gives sources for that. Again, these are always going to be the teachings of leaders, prophets, seers, and revelators or the very uh, words said in the scriptures that we have. And so he says, like other Christian religions, Mormons believe that Adam was the first human being on earth and the father of the human race. And I just want to note here, what I'm going to do is stop at each of these and explain to you why it's not the most rational way to see the world. Now, you can still believe it, but I want you to also comprehend that if you're asked to make a hundred irrational conclusions, the statistical likelihood that your conclusions are correct, if they're all needed to, they're all connected to each other. Like I not only need aliens to land on my roof, but my leg was sore this morning, so I must have been abducted. And um, I went to work today and my boss was upset with me, so the aliens must have brainwashed him too. And every time you add another layer of another conclusion that requires more allowances and conjecture than the most rational decision, you are, you, are, you are creating a scenario where more and more it is statistically improbable and maybe even to the point of being just impossible. So this idea of Adam being the first human, the first thing I would say is we have science and science offers us uh, theories, 
Um, but it also offers us uh, experiments and data. And we got to be really careful if we buck up against science all the time, simply because we want our beliefs to be true. We recognize that on this earth, there is a fossil record of life that existed before us. Whether you agree with it or not, science is adamant that humans didn't just show up one day as humans, rather that there are multiple species multiple species of ancestors before us. So 13.7 billion years ago, there's something happens. We, you know, science calls it the big bang, but something happens and the universe begins and comes forth out of that and just spreads forth continually going and going. Sorry if I bumped my mic there and you heard that. I'm just trying to make room for my hands to be seen so that some of the body language gets picked up. We have all these species of our ancestors that were something less than human. And we can see the general progression of those species to the point where today you and I are human. But if we do a DNA test, every human has a small amount of Neanderthal uh, DNA in them. And so science is pretty adamant that... uh, that there was something else, again, something from like long before, you know, the primates we have on the earth today. So it's not that we came forth from monkeys, but that us and other monkeys or apes, uh, chimpanzees, um, bonobos, gibbons, all those other primate families that we all share, if we go back far enough, a common ancestor. And that common ancestor evolved little bit by little bit by little bit. And there's never really a moment where we're exactly human because even who we are today as a species is slightly different than what humans were, you know, 5,000 years ago. Um, We get taller or shorter generally, our feet get bigger. So there are all these small little tiny changes and shifts that over a billion years, there are significant changes from the front end to the back end. And so to say that Adam is the first human simply doesn't coincide with science. That would be really difficult to find a moment where we go like, oh, there was this other species, but today, you know, little Gary was born and Gary is fully human. Um, We essentially pick these moments in time where we can see these significant differences and we then classify that as a different species of hominoid, um, a different species in the primate family, which we're part of. And and so I just want to recognize on the onset that the idea that Adam is the first human being on earth would really run up against science and would be seen as the weaker view by far. The next thing he says is, um, In God's image, he says, Adam and all human beings are created in God's literal image. He arrived on earth with a celestial body. And you see this in Mormonism. Adam and Eve are placed in the garden, um, which is this perfect place. There's no sin there. And Adam arrives with a celestial body. He is not fallen yet. But again, I just want to note that idea runs counter to science or any 
uh, intelligent view that's on the earth today that because to to say, hey, you know what? I think he really did arrive here uh, under the direction of our heavenly father who placed him in the Garden of Eden with a perfected body, a celestial body. What you're doing is you're saying that my myth story about how the world came to be and how we got to this moment trumps any facts, any data, any science, any research, any education, any um, view that's data-driven. I, I simply read it in my sacred text, and hence I, I know it's true, and that's the belief I'm going to hold. And I'm simply here to tell you, like, you can believe that again, but recognize that you then you're giving, um, you have a hierarchy of how you choose to believe things and you pray, you place scriptural canon above data and facts and research and science and all those things. Uh, again, you can do that, but to believe that Adam was placed here on the earth with a celestial body by our heavenly father who lives on a planet near a star named Kolob out there somewhere in space is to acknowledge on the front end that you're not holding the most rational view. Um, the next thing he says is phys physical superiority. Adam and other men of his day had bodies physically superior to those of modern man. Adam lived for 930 years after his fall. Again, a human being living 930 years violates everything we know in the health sciences. And for you to believe that Adam was physically superior to humans today in the sense that his body ran so well that he lived 930 years would violate everything we know about how the human body works and even how other animal life works. I don't know of any living life form on the earth that could live that long. Our bodies deteriorate. There are natural processes involved. Uh, evolution favors getting you to the age of maturity where you can reproduce. And as soon as your uh, reproduction years have occurred, your body then uh, has no evolutionary advantage in staying around. So our bodies deteriorate. If you want to believe that Adam lived 930 years, again, feel free to just recognize how much conjecture you need to um, allow your myth story and your faith tradition to have the right answer instead of allowing science and data-driven research uh, to correct that. The next thing he mentions is Michael the Archangel. He talks about how in his pre-mortal and post-mortal roles, he is known as Michael the Archangel. Adam was given to him for his earthly existence. I, I want to note maybe something you don't know, which is that Brigham Young, second president of the church, uh, taught the Adam-God doctrine. And he taught that Adam was our heavenly father and that Elohim was our heavenly grandfather. Um, Brigham Young taught that. Heber C. Kimball taught it. Wilford Woodruff taught it. All the early prophets, the first three or four of them. 
And it was taught at the, uh, the veil at the St. George temple. And uh, you have Brigham Young with numerous quotes. The apologists try to pretend like there's not that much out there, but I would simply suggest go to a Google search and type in teachings on Adam God and open yourself up to the wide list of those that have been taught. In later years, Bruce R. McConkie, Spencer W. Kimball, and others disavowed that teaching. We essentially said, um, we, we, we were really careful wording it. We didn't want to say, hey, we used to teach it, now we don't. We would say things like, it has been suggested that leaders in the past taught this, but we clearly state that you know Adam was our first uh, parent of mortality, him and Eve were in the garden, but that Heavenly Father is our Heavenly Father, and that's not Adam, and they disavowed those past teachings. So in this moment, I just want you to recognize that the church hasn't always been consistent in knowing uh, the very image or character of God. And you ought to know that, you ought to be aware of that so that you can essentially go like, hey, these are what the early leaders taught. Here's what later leaders taught. Why do I place trust in one over the other? Why did one get it wrong? How do I know that the guys now aren't getting it wrong? And it raises tons of questions about how you place trust in these men if they don't have the propensity to really, on a regular, consistent basis, get access to Revelation and be able to straighten out the record. And maybe today's prophet straightened out the record, but then how did the past prophet get it wrong? And what about the people who prayed at the time of that past prophet and felt a spiritual confirmation that those things were true? It, it causes us to have to wrestle with this stuff. Next up, he says, uh, Adam knew about Christ in the gospel. While on earth, Adam and Eve understood the future mission of Jesus Christ and were taught about God's plan of salvation. That's a unique teaching in Mormonism. Um, there are numerous myth stories that coincide with the Adam and Eve story. Again, I don't have them on hand, but there we have myth stories that are older than the Christian or Jewish traditions. Those myth stories have very similar narratives to them about the first man or the first woman, woman. And those characters have different names. The events that happen to them are different because every culture is trying to come up with an origin story. If you lived 200,000 years ago and you sat around a fire and you didn't, you, you know, you saw the stars in the sky, but you didn't know what they were, or you saw, you know, thunder and lightning and rain come down. And you didn't know what caused that. Or, certain people died from disease and other people didn't, you're trying to make sense of your world. And so for hundreds of thousands of years, human beings or their ancestors have been creating myth stories, creating gods, creating narratives to make sense of the world around them. The idea that Adam knew the gospel of Jesus Christ and knew who Jesus Christ was is a imposition that Mormonism makes. But just to know, again, by believing that, you're giving uh, prevalence to the, conclu the conclusion that requires more conjecture and allowances. 
um, it was taught that Adam was baptized. While on earth, Adam was baptized by the Spirit of the Lord. This is in the Pearl of Great Price, Moses chapter 6, 64 through 65. Adam was caught away by the Spirit of the Lord and was carried down into the water and was laid under the water and was brought forth out of the water. And thus he was baptized, and the Spirit of God descended upon him, and thus he was born of the Spirit and became quickened in the inner man. This requires magical thinking. Your belief, if Mormonism is true, these things all have to kind of hold up. And what you're saying is that there's no indication that anything could carry someone down into the water and baptize them. And we don't even have on record anywhere but in Mormonism that Adam was baptized. And so, again, I'm going to give weight to my myth story, my tribal story that I've been given from when I was born. I just happen to be born in the right place to the right parents. I just am lucky I've got the Mormon gospel already here. I just happen to be in the true and living church. Meanwhile, there are, again, tons of other stories out there about how to make meaning of the origin of us in the world. So notice that you require magical thinking and and just juxtapose that with modern prophets, seers, and revelators. Do you see any magic there? Again, when we live in um, ages of verifiable history, we are able, because, because folks are witnesses to events, we have phones with cameras, we have uh, newspapers and journalists, we have media, we have the ability to have um, critical accounts of faithful stories. So if someone says, uh, I picked up a lottery ticket and I won, and somebody goes, no, I saw him at the store yesterday and he took it out of somebody's hand. Like we have to deal with the fact that history, we live in an age where history to some extent is verifiable. And that if we go back in time to a time when history wasn't verifiable, the ability for um, absurd stories to be believed was much more likely because there wasn't anything to counter it or disprove it. So for instance, we know that there are a ton of stories told in Mormonism that are faith promoting that didn't happen. Brigham Young's transfiguration is one, the Sweetwater Crossing, the way it was told is another. Uh, John Taylor, when he was in Carthage jail with Joseph and Hiram, that he got shot in the watch, uh, blocked a bullet or, or absorbed a bullet and it didn't kill him. There's tons of these kinds of stories. And there are so many false faith-promoting stories that we now have enough ability to have enough of a historical record to go like, this doesn't make sense because of this data. If we go back in time, there isn't that ability. There's only really the one narrative, the the Old Testament, the New Testament. There's a few little witnesses to kind of the time of Jesus and maybe a little bit to him but they're not very strong. There aren't newspapers, there aren't journalists, there isn't any kind of ability to record. Um, and the accounts of the New Testament are written you know, decades and decades after the life of Jesus Christ. And so in an age of unverifiable history, it becomes much easier to promote false faith-promoting stories and to have them be believed because there's nothing there to counter it. 
This idea that something carried Adam into the water and baptized him is magical thinking. And in an age of verifiable history, we no longer see magic anywhere. We're told stories of that require magical thinking, but there isn't really a modern moment where magical thinking seems to happen right in front of us. And so when you when you believe that Adam was carried uh, away by the Spirit of the Lord and carried down into the water and was laid under the water and brought forth out of the water, you're choosing to believe magical thinking in, in spite of the fact that there isn't any evidence for magic. I, I would say, like, show me. I, I've put out posts on Facebook before where I say, like, hey, show me somebody who had their ear lopped off, they got a priesthood blessing, and their ear came back. Show me somebody who had their eye popped out from an accident, and they got a blessing, and when the hands were taken off, the eye was back in the socket. Somebody who had an arm cut off, and their arm grew back. Um, These things don't happen. We only have stories of these things that happen, but none of us ever see something that dramatic. So just to note that. Uh, The next thing he says is that Eve, not from Adam's rib. He says the late uh, President Spencer W. Kimball clarified, by the way, this was in the gospel doctrine manual at one time. The late President Spencer W. Kimball clarified that Eve was not literally created from Adam's rib as described in scripture. The story is figurative. Brigham Young also is on the record as saying much of our scriptures are figurative. And I just want to push a little bit on that and and say, once you start to make space that some of the stories in your in your myth uh, book are figurative, we're going to have to have a conversation about how you decide what's literal and what isn't. Like, where do you draw the line? Because there are so many stories in the Old Testament that require magical thinking again, uh, a global flood. There's so much data that goes against a global flood. The Tower of Babel. We already understand how languages uh, disseminate, how they change, how they are adapted by tribes in various locations. And we also recognize uh, archa- um, uh, infrastructure, architecture, and how buildings are built and what is required for a building to go up so high. And the reality is that the Tower of Babel and the global flood and talking donkeys and much of the stories we read in the scriptures are are absurd to the point where you have to choose to believe them in spite of science, in spite of the data that runs against them. Spencer W. Kimball is telling you here that this particular part of this particular story is figurative. And then I would just simply ask, like, where do you decide to draw the line? And if this story's figurative, could a thousand more be figurative and you just not know it? The next one he says is married to Eve for eternity. Mormon scripture describes how Adam and Eve were husband and wife. They were married for all eternity, sealed. This was the beginning of the institution of eternal marriage on earth. Because Adam and Eve were married, their having sex was not a sin. The late President Joseph Fielding Smith explained the transgression of Adam did not involve sex sin, as some falsely believe and teach. Here's what happens, and it happens often in Mormonism. Mormon theology um, contains a problem. There's some thing that doesn't add up. 
And early leaders, uh, Brigham Young, um, Joseph F. Smith, Joseph Fielding Smith, Bruce R. McConkie, there are, are a bunch of our leaders who were very quick to try to solve problems. And they would often come up with a solution that would solve that theological conundrum, but which would also open up uh, a plethora of others. And so in this moment, uh, there's this idea that Adam and Eve uh, had sex with each other. And so we have to have them married first, because otherwise they'd be breaking the law of chastity. And so Joseph Fielding Smith is saying, like, look, they had to have been married because they couldn't have had sex sin. And, uh, and he solves the problem that way. But it's, it's conjecture anytime you start with an assumption that there isn't any data to back up. You're simply going, hey, there's a problem here and there's a law. So I know they're not breaking the law because that wouldn't fit. So they, hence, they must have just been keeping the law. Um, Mormonism, again, if you read deep enough, if you study Mormonism long enough, you'll come to the recognition that often Mormonism is trying to solve one problem and it doesn't recognize it opens up a bunch of others. And I'm sure we'll get into that maybe in this episode, but certainly in episodes to come. Um, he says next that Adam had more than one wife. Brigham Young taught that when our father Adam came into the Garden of Eden, he came into it with a celestial body and brought Eve, one of his wives, with him. And further, our father Adam helped to make this earth. He and his companions came here. He brought one of his wives with him. Now, the, this here is one of the conversations by Brigham Young that speaks directly to the Adam-God teaching. But the author here, Chris Jensen, is using it to show that Adam had more than one wife. So again, recognize that you're needing to give weight to a teaching of your church that seems to require conjecture and allowances and doesn't really mesh based on science or data. Um, that Adam had more than one wife and that he brought them from wherever he came from. So, you know, uh, pre-earth life. Uh, he had children before Cain and Abel. Contrary to what is taught in the Bible, Adam and Eve had children before Cain and Abel. Due to the incompleteness of the biblical record, many regard Cain as the eldest son of Adam. However, Latter-day Saint Revelation tells us that Adam and Eve had many sons and daughters before Cain was born. And again, here's, here's another one where we solve a problem. This solves an apparent inconsistency in the Bible in which Cain kills Abel and goes to the land of Nod, where he and his wife have a baby. Where did the wife come from if Adam and Eve only had two children at the time? See, there's a problem in the theology, so we come up with a solution, but the solution is problematic on its own because it requires additional conjecture and allowances. Um, I want to note here, uh, he says, Adam is at Adam Ande Amen. Three years before his death, Adam met with his righteous descendants. Remember, he lived 930 years in a place called Adam Ande Amen. To give them his final blessing and to be blessed. 
And the Lord appeared unto quote, and the Lord appeared unto him, unto them, and they rose up and blessed Adam and called him Michael, the prince, the archangel, and the unquote. Adam Ande Amon is in present-day Missouri, U.S., near the original Garden of Eden. Just want to stop here. Here's another moment where church leaders have reversed position. If you go uh, on Google, I'm going to do it here real quick in front of you, and I'll put it up on the screen. But if I go on and I type uh, location, Garden of Eden, and uh, we'll do church newsroom, which is where I think it is. And uh, I'll share the screen here in just a moment and see uh, what is said here. And I'm not finding the the link I want, but there's a there's an article from the church newsroom where uh, they are answering uh, questions about LDS theology. And uh, in fact, get a get do we get a planet? That's also there. Get a planet and um, Garden of Eden, Missouri. And we we may not find it here. I I should have had this ready for you, so I'm super sorry about that. I'm just sitting here reading the the one document that I do find. Um, I'm not seeing it. So, but there is an article where uh, the church comes out and says, look, you know, there are important doctrines or less important doctrines. We shouldn't worry about where the garden of Eden is. We don't really know. Um, you know, we know Adam and Eve were cast out of the garden. We, we know that Adam on Amen is in Missouri, but we really don't know where the garden of Eden was. And I just want to note that Mormonism at one time was very adamant that the garden of Eden was in or near, uh, and Adam on Amen, uh, in Missouri and that today the church doesn't really want to come across as being very strong and fixed on that data point. And so Mormonism, again, is changing all the time. Um, Adam, next thing he says is the roles of Adam. Adam has played and is playing and will play many important roles. Adam helped to form this earth. He labored with our Savior, Jesus Christ. I just want to note again uh, the Adam-God teachings. Uh, which used to be doctrine, and now they're disavowed uh, theories, essentially. Uh, Here's another one. Adam's language. Adam and Eve could speak, of course, but what language? Their own Adamic language. It was superior. They used a language that was superior to any other language. In the beginning, God gave Adam a language that was pure, perfect, undefiled. This Adamic language, now unknown, was far superior to any tongue which is presently extant. It was either the celestial tongue of the gods or such adaptation of it as was necessary to meet the limitations of mortality. Um, That's not how language works. So the idea is that, you know, whatever we used to be hundreds of thousands of years ago, 
we didn't have um, significant language. Like most animals, we could make some sounds. And as humans or whatever we were at the time, as we evolved, we developed uh, vocal cords. We developed a brain that was getting bigger and bigger and able to process complex thinking. And so science says that we began, we invented, humans invent language, but it starts off super small. There's a handful of words. And as our vocal cords and our mouth are able to make additional sounds, we can now create multiple syllables, multiple words. As our brains begin to comprehend uh, how to share thought, we begin to essentially form sentences, although we wouldn't have called it that. We wouldn't have been grammar fixed on grammar or anything like that. We just would have said, here's a, I'm going to tell you a story. And the story would have involved multiple words together to convey a complex thought. We know how languages develop and alter. There's science behind that as well. So it, it just makes zero sense that we go back in time to an extravagant, complex, perfect language and it deteriorated over time. Rather, science imposes that we would have started off with a few small words or sounds and we would have slowly increased that and those sounds and words as people uh, split off from each other and ended up in different geographic locations separated from each other, those languages would evolve into something different. So to the point where French and Latin and Spanish have similarities, but they're also very different because they share essentially a common ancestor of language. And, and so when you understand language and how it uh, was invented and how it adapted, this idea that there was a perfect language at one point in time long ago doesn't make any sense. By the way, the church also, it, again, it's changed on this, but the church used to teach adamantly that the earth was 6,000 years old we were approaching the millennium. Jesus is getting ready to come back and then we'll have another thousand years. So there's a 7,000 years or the seven seals out of revelation. But what we uh, ought to recognize is that this planet is like four and a half billion years old. And um, the idea of when hominoid life came on the scene, we're talking like a million years ago, two million years ago, and then humans, it gets to the point where we can see uh, humans in the fossil record about 200,000 years ago. And so we ought to note, again, what science imposes about this and how to be a believing Mormon, you have to, again, give weight to your myth story in ways that deeply contradict science, research, and data. Uh, there's the idea that the names of God, in, in Adam's language, Christ was called Amon, and God the Father, man of holiness. Uh, Adam Ande Amon is the name carried over from the pure Adamic language into English. Again, that's conjecture and allowances. It's choosing to believe in a story. <clears throat> it's choosing to believe in a story only because the story exists and you were told to believe the story not because the story is backed up by any data or research. And not only do you choose to believe your story over science and data, but you choose to believe your story over 
thousands of other religious narratives that also in their day and sometimes even in the modern moment have followers and believers who believe in their myth narrative just as strongly as you believe in your myth narrative. Uh, he says that um, it continued into talking about the Adamic language. It continued until Babel. The Adamic language continued from Abbott from Adam to Babel approximately 1,750 years. So again, Humans have at least been using language, again, most likely science-based, 200,000 years. And what you're saying is that a certain language existed until just under 2,000 um, 2, years BC. And that is, it's absurd when you understand how quickly language adapts, how hard it is to keep language consistent. Every year, um, our dictionaries have to add new words because new words are being invented in the human language. It Again, it doesn't make any sense. And on top of that, a Tower of Babel is absurd. Um, to have a tower where one language comes and now it splits off into multiple languages instantaneously, It's that's just insane. That's not how things work. It says that uh, the Edemic language was used by Jared, chapter one, 21 discusses the Jaredite civilization in the Book of Mormon, chapter 21 of this book, I believe. Jared and his brother were present at the Tower of Babel. It is believed that they preserved the Edemic language when they immigrated to the Americas. Again, lots of allowances, lots of conjecture about whether there was a Tower of Babel, whether those folks were there, whether they were able to keep this language intact, whether they were able to take this language and build some barges and put stones of light on and take honeybees and plant life and animals in their barges across the ocean, land on the Americas, when there's no evidence of any of that other than your myth story tells you that that is true. It says that Adam named all animals. First off, Adam wouldn't have been in the presence of all animals. Um, when we understand how animal life developed, also evolution, when we understand how animals tend to find themselves in certain environments, for instance, penguins need a certain environment to survive. Camels need a certain environment to survive. Bats need a certain environment to survive. That's true for every animal. You need a certain diet, a certain climate. Uh, you need certain factors to be in place. Certain kinds of predators can't be there. Other kinds of predators need to be to keep the population in, in a, a solid amount. You can't have a population become uh, too big because you'll eat out all the resources. You can't have a population become too small. It'll die off and become extinct. The idea that Adam named all the animals in the Garden of Eden, again, is absurd. And it's not that I'm sitting here making fun of your belief it's that I'm telling you, you're going to have to confront that in order to believe all of this, you have to just acknowledge like, look, I don't have good evidence for my beliefs. I just believe them anyway. And, and to recognize when you do that, that you're being irrational. And that's fine. There are lots of irrational people. There are people out there who believe in a flat earth. There are people out there who believe they've been abducted by aliens. There are people out there uh, who think, you know, elections are fixed or that this happened or that happened, or, you know, this conspiracy theory is true. And that conspiracy theory is true. We didn't land on the moon. There are tons of those, but when you choose to believe that in the face of the data, and I'm handing you the data today, we're having a conversation about this. 
when you do it in the face of the data, you, you have to acknowledge you're being irrational, meaning that you're always choosing answers that are less than the most rational answer at any given situation. Uh, here, Adam's fall. Here's a better one. The LDS church sees Adam's fall very differently than other Christian faiths. For instance, the earth changed its orbit. When Adam fell, the earth also fell from its original orbit near the planet Kolob. Brigham Young observed, when Adam fell, the earth fell into space and took up its abode in this planetary system. And the sun became our light. As a result of this shift, the earth's reckoning of time changed from Kolob time to solar time. Do you believe that? Do you believe that the planet earth was somewhere else and that when Adam fell, the earth came from some other location, likely near Kolob, right? Some other location came into this planetary system, locked in its orbit with the sun and the other planets. And that's how it happened. But Brigham Young said so. He's a prophet, seer, revelator. He talks to Heavenly Father. And, and you can see how an idea like that is absurd. My gut tells me that inside, as you're listening, like you don't believe that. And yet your leaders have taught that. And, and if your leaders teach untrue things, how many untrue things have they taught? And how would you know which things are untrue and which ones are true? And you say the Holy Ghost, but members all throughout the Restoration have believed things that later leaders have said we no longer believe. And so even the Holy Ghost doesn't quite work. And so you have to pick and choose which things are true. Talks about spiritual death and rebirth. The fall of Adam brought banishment from the presence of God called spiritual death. Also temporal death, the fall of Adam also brought a second physical death before Adam's fall. Blood did not flow in his veins. Before Adam fell, blood did not flow in his veins. After the fall, the forbidden fruit had the power to create blood and to change Adam's nature, and mortality took the place of immortality. Not only did Adam and Eve become susceptible to temporal death, but all living things partaking of the change became mortal. So there was a garden somewhere, and Adam and Eve partook of a fruit. And when they partook of a fruit, they were cast out of the garden, and all life at that point became mortal. It could die. That's just a myth story. That story has no basis in reality. Nothing in the world that we know tells us that that was true. Other than someone wrote down an origin story, and we've been told to believe it. Um, part of God's plan, a blessing. Let's see here. That pretty much is the end of it. And so I'll kind of finish up uh, here with this, this episode. My plan is to go through a series and take multiple chapters of this book and just have a conversation with you about what Mormonism imposes is true. And once you wrestle with it to realize just how many times you have to choose to believe in something irrational. Anything less than the, the most rational conclusion is irrational. And often we justify irrational thought because these beliefs are important to us. Again, I joined the church at 17. 
I was immediately called to be an assistant ward mission leader. Then I became a secretary in the elders quorum presidency. Then I was a second counselor in the elders quorum presidency. Then I was a first counselor in the elders quorum presidency. Then I became an elders quorum president. Then I became a um, counselor. No, no, I'm sorry. I was a counselor in a bishopric, but then I was also uh, a counselor in the young men's presidency. And eventually I became the bishop of the ward I joined. I was all in. I read everything. You can see the books behind me. Um, I've thrown out probably two thirds of my Mormon books because they, they weren't reference material for the things that I talk about in the podcast. And so I need to make room on my shelf for things that were more data driven. So most of my Mormon material now is just a record of the things that have been said and taught encyclopedia of Mormonism up in that corner up there. Um, general conference talks there on the red books. Uh, tons of books about how the temple ordinances have changed, um, how we taught various concepts like the fall or the apostasy. I, I read a bunch. And all along the way, I continued to try to make all these things fit. At some point, I just became overwhelmed. The critic seems to have a better answer at every single turn. And so eventually I just had to let go of all these things I wanted to be true because they just didn't make any rational sense. And I wanted to be a truth seeker. I wanted to value the truth. I wanted to find the truth. I wanted to hold on to the truth. But at some point I just realized that this religious system taught me a story and it taught me how to know it was true. It taught me what was good and what was bad. It told me who to trust and who not to trust. And when I no longer took all those things for granted, I began to find great wisdom outside the church. And I found greater truth. And I found um, a more applicable way of living a healthy, honest, fully lived life. And so I'll continue the series. I'll try to pick up every few weeks and do one of these. But this will be our uh, our first one. Is Mormonism absurd? Adam, our first parent. I hope that you keep watching and listening, but mostly I hope you keep reading and thinking and allow yourself to be uncomfortable. Because if you really are a truth seeker, you're willing to change your mind if enough evidence comes forward that counters the beliefs that you have. And with that, I'll end this episode. I hope you have a great day. If you want to reach me, you can send me an email at Mormon Discussions with an S on the end, podcasts with an S on the end at gmail.com. You can also visit our website, uh, mdpodcast.org or mormondiscussions.org. You can also find me on Facebook. It's right there at the bottom, bill.real.7. You can just do a Google search for Mormon Discussion. We operate multiple podcasts. We are a nonprofit charity that seeks to help people have enough information that they can make informed decisions about how they'll use their time, energy, and resources in relationship with the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I am what your church would call an apostate. I've been excommunicated for talking about the history of the church and for showing that some of its leaders weren't honest. And I'm going to continue to do that. If you're interested in our work, you can find our YouTube channel right there at the bottom, Mormon Discussions, Inc. And uh, 
you can visit any of our podcasts and hope that you find this information valuable. Otherwise, thank you and have a great day.